Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you today from the steam room at the Father Guido Sarducci Center of Excellence for the Ecumenical Study of Interfaith Religion and Society here on the beautiful Hoople campus. This week we're talking about the discovery of a second synagogue at the site of Magdala on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now the first time I recorded this intro I said the Dead Sea, which was way off base because what's left of my mind is probably stuck back in prehistory somewhere. Anyway, <clears throat> the first synagogue had the famous, Magda, famous, famous Magdala stone. Very hard to say. A sort of carved altar depicting, among other things, a menorah. But the second new building, well, it has a bench and some pillars and some stuff. Was one building for services and the other for what exactly? How can we tell public buildings from private buildings? How many synagogues did a place like Magdala have anyway? But how often did people go to services in the first place? The piety in the past question. Who boy. Okay, well, so now that we've exhausted ourselves with pregame chat, <laughs> we'll move right to the, to the lightning round. Um, <clears throat> Most interesting religious site you ever, most interesting religious experience that you ever experienced. And by interesting, I don't mean impressive or necessarily beautiful or interesting in some kind of condescending, oh, that's so interesting <laughs> sort of sense, but interesting in the sense of, of being outside your range of experience and knowledge and, and, uh, you know, personality. Something that really came from some, from somewhere and impressed you. Why don't you go first, Alex? Sounds like you have something in mind. <laughs> well, I, in fact, I do. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the Day of the Dead celebration. Oh. Prescott, Arizona on the Yavapai Reservation. Nice. Back in the day. Now, I don't remember too much about what was going on. I remember, you know, masks and dancing. I was not participating. Um, but it was like, wow, this is, this is so different from anything that I have ever experienced to that point. That it really, it really stood out. And, and continues to do so 40 years later. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. I want to go last. Hmm. I've got something in mind, and it's really apropos. So I want. I don't to know back. whether you get to. Oh, make so what, I can't think of. I can't think. I mean, I know I've had these kinds of experiences, 
that have been profound and impactful and very foreign? Different. Different. I can't quite put my finger on them right now. Hmm. Should we come hmm. back at the end of the episode? For <laughs> season six? Well, why don't you go, Rachel? All right, we'll... I'll, I'll go. But mine is more of a religious, experiencing a religious place as opposed to a religious experience. Okay. And it was when I was taken a few years ago on a tour of Magdala, the very site oh. we're going to be oh. talking about. Okay. Um, and there is a modern church Perfect. there, part of this whole pilgrimage uh, sort of hotel hostel area they have set up. And the church is amazing. It's huge. It's modern. It's beautiful. And the back wall of it faces, I guess, faces east to the Sea of Galilee. And um, the uh, podium is shaped like a boat. And um, you look outside and behind the boat-shaped podium is the Sea of Galilee in the background. And, you know, this is like the ideal if you are a religious pilgrim going to see the sites around the Sea of Galilee. And there you are worshiping in a church, which really brings the whole experience home. I would imagine that that is a fantastic religious experience. What didn't you go to, didn't you go to, um, you know, Christmas in, in Ghent? Or something? I went to Christmas, I think in Brussels, Brussels. Uh, mid midnight mass in Brussels. Uh, okay. And that was actually very fascinating, but you know, I didn't speak the language. Um, <laughs> you don't speak Latin? <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't a Latin service. It wasn't Latin. Uh, okay. <laughs> Mm. All right. So, should we come back to you, Professor? Well, Bell? I'll just I'll give I'll give one sort of, you know, uh, cliche, but nonetheless, um, something that I I remembered, and that was I was in around Christmas time. I was in the Church of Saint Anne, the Crusader Church of Saint Anne in the Old City, which is a beautiful little Crusader church, and a group of of French nuns came in and started singing. Wow. And, the, and the acoustics in that place, it's really small and the acoustics are outstanding. So that was very, um, it was just very, very beautiful. And it just felt, you know, very, very 13th century. <laughs> right. right. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's, and that sounds very, it, it could be 13th century. It probably hasn't changed that much since the 13th century. No, no. Maybe, maybe you know, the light, the lighting equipment that uh, that's used. But uh, well, so does any of this any of this bring us to Magdala? I guess we've already been to Magdala now. <laughs> Some of us. Some of us I have already to been to last. Magdala. <laughs> okay. Well, someone should introduce it. And then, and then we need to tell the joke. Okay, so I will introduce this. So there is a site in Northern Israel, right near the Sea of Galilee called Magdala. On the left-hand side. On the left, on the west side, <laughs> correct. <laughs> uh, and it is uh, possibly, probably uh, the, the birthplace of Mary Magdalene, assuming the, the etymology of her name is in fact, Mary of Magdala. Um, and uh, it's been excavated since uh, the early 2000s, I think since 2006. And one of the big things that they found there was a synagogue. And within the synagogue is, they found what is now known as the Magdala Stone, 
which has a bunch of images, most interestingly, a seven branched candelabra. Um, so candelabra? <laughs> what are we waiting for Liberace to work? It's, it's, it actually Whoa. sits, it oh sits on a piano. Oh <laughs> and a man in a white tuxedo comes out. Come on, man. This is a history podcast. So you think I can say like Menorah and everybody will know what I'm talking about if I it's say Menorah? It's a history comedy podcast. So I guess. Yeah, I think um, you can go straight to Menorah. And so there's the a seven branched Menorah on, <laughs> on this. Uh, Magdala stone and uh, and that that has sort of made put put the put the site on the archaeological map so to speak but then just this year excavators found another synagogue in Magdala so this is a town with two synagogues okay who's going to tell the joke I think you are <laughs> I think you are <laughs> so this guy is flying a plane over the Pacific and he sees a small island and he starts, or she starts to circle the island. And as she gets closer to the island, she sees someone jumping up and down, waving and waving. And she sees a couple of buildings. So she lands her plane and the guy on the island says, oh, thank God you've, you've found me. I've been here for, I didn't even know how long, decades I've been living here. And I'm finally getting rescued. And she said, yeah, sure. but." What are these buildings? This is phenomenal. Did you build them? And he said, yes, this building over here, this is, uh, I'm Jewish. This is a synagogue. And this is, this, is, uh, this is where I pray. And she said, what about this other building? He said, oh, that's, that's the other synagogue. That one I wouldn't step foot in. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely told. Well told, well told. So is that what's going on here? Is this, are, are these two synagogues, one of which has niches in the wall, possibly for scrolls, and it has stone vessels and, and glass. That's the first one. And then the second one, which is square, it's in the industrial zone. It just didn't no, go No, 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 no. Okay, so first, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, no. But first, so there's a lot of recent articles about this. And they're all quite imprecise. And right. they all say slightly different things about the same stuff. Right. So it's hard to know. So that's the space in which we operate, though. That's the space. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So from what I, OK, so there are these two synagogues. And one of them, as Rachel, you did a nice job of, uh, of explaining, has, the, has this beautiful piece of uh, carved limestone with a seven-branched menorah. And also uh, sort of two vessels and also sort of part of the elements of, this, of the temple in Jerusalem. And that's associated with the first synagogue that was found and the larger and more ornate. But as for all of the other stuff, like the glass and the rings and the- uh, Stone vessels. The stone vessels. I think those are sort of found at Around the site. It? Yeah, at the site, not necessarily in the buildings. Yeah, I was confused by that also because depending on which article you read, there maybe there this kind of thing is in both of the synagogue buildings. Right, and that I don't think that they would both have the same list. Doesn't make sense. So, but I want to, if I could, I want to start with the first order of business, which is why this most recent building is called a synagogue. Mm. 
Mm. Why is the second synagogue a synagogue? And the articles are not particularly uh, expansive on this issue. No. So I think that might be something, the first order of business. Why are they calling it a synagogue? That's a great question. I hadn't even thought to question it, but we, that should be exactly where we start. I don't know why I didn't think to question it. Well, it's square and it has benches. It has a bench. It bench, right. Right, exactly. And it has pillars. Right, wait, okay. it does? The second synagogue has pillars? Well, right, exactly. <laughs> the, the first synagogue I think has four pillars and there's a plan and a photograph and you can yes. see them. Yes. And the second synagogue where there's no illustrative material um, one of the, or two of the articles, and these are all articles from popular uh, magazines and newspapers, mentions six pillars. So pillars and bench means public building. Mm -hmm. In antiquity, going back to the Calcolithic, <laughs> right? right? Right. If you have a bench, it's True. a public building. And if you don't have a bench, it's a domestic building. Right. Um, so um, pillars and bench equals public building. Right, and, and it also says that it had the walls were covered in plaster and colorfully decorated. Right, and that there was a simple, uh, some evidence for a simple mosaic floor. Right. Wait, we're talking about the original the new, second one. The second one, the new one. This is all the second one. The first building has a very beautiful, elaborate uh, mosaic. Oh, you're right, you're right. Right, you're and right. the first one also has evidence for beautiful polychromatic um, uh, wall frescoes. Right, okay, um, got it, got it. Right. So the second one also, also has coated, uh, is plaster covered. And... Right, a little, right. The less plaster, but plaster covered and some evidence for um, frescoes. Right. But it's the bench and the pillars. Yeah. So if we really stand back and stop being biblical archaeologists and just be, you know, archaeologists, it's a... It, it's probably a public building. Yeah. But, but why is it a synagogue? Were there other kinds of public buildings during this period? Well, that, of course, in, in you know, in Greco-Roman cities, there, of course, were. There were many this kinds leads, of different public buildings. This um, leads also to, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, but I, I, I'm saying it's just, an, it's just a, a point of departure. Yeah. Um, and it's the leap of faith. And it, there you go. Most, most literally. Right. Right. But the, the, we also should talk about the function of a synagogue, especially because it's postulated that these were built in the first century BC. So a century before the temple was destroyed. So theoretically, all Jews in the vicinity of, of Judea are um, supposed to be going to three times a year to the temple in Jerusalem. And right, has... sure, but so what? The, the rest of the time, those are, those, are when they, those are when they have to go to Jerusalem on the pilgrimage festivals. The rest of the time on, on other holidays and on the Sabbath, what are they supposed to do? They gotta be praying somewhere. <laughs> they gotta go to their local, their local synagogue right. or two. Right. And, well, uh, right, and, and this is a big question in the sort of scholarship of this period. Um, you know, uh, for a long time, it was thought there were no synagogues that uh, coexisted with the with the Second Temple, right. and then and then some were found. And of course, there's the Theodotus inscription in Jerusalem, and the Theodotus inscription, which is seen as as completely authentic um, and not a forgery, 
um, <laughs> you know, mentions three generations of, of synagogue officiants in Jerusalem. So we should have known for a long time. We shouldn't have even been arguing that, yes, there were synagogues. They coexisted with the temple and there were even synagogues in Jerusalem, let alone outside. But there's even more evidence. I mean, the earliest synagogue is from Delos, dates to the third century BCE. Right. And we have temples in Egypt that, you know, predate. Much older. Much older. Right. 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 So we know that, that Jews. Like the temples, that's different. Right. And, it's a little and, different, but it's And we the same also concept. know that, that in the first temple period, <laughs> as we've, and we've beaten this subject into a pulp <laughs> during the course of season one, there are a variety of temples. Right. Um, outside of Jerusalem. Right. Right. But again, you got to distinguish between the fact that you're not supposed to make sacrifices to your God okay. outside the Temple of Jerusalem, as opposed to maybe praying to your God, which ah, is clear. Right. Since so you were filed in 586. So. Right. But we're talking about function. I think the idea of Jews going or Yahwehists in, in the sixth century in Egypt, going to a building, um, especially in the diaspora, but clearly right. also now in in Judea and its and its adjacent areas, the idea of you know, Yahwehistic co-religionists going and hanging out together in a, in a, sp in a public space shouldn't be a radical idea. Right. Uh, and now we just have the evidence for it. Right, right, right. Well, the surprise that, the surprise expressed in some of these articles by people, again, I, fi I find slightly... Surprising. surprising because all the evidence was was there that yeah there there is a much more dispersed uh diffused kind of kind of practice and, and elementary logic suggests that yeah they're not they're not just sitting on their hands the rest of the year and, and three times a year marching marching up to jerusalem to you know engage in sacrifices and or, or, worship right and of course in all of these articles they come from this perspective that ancient Jews are inherently uh, pious and observant and religious. Yeah. How do you guys feel about that kind of a axiomatic uh, analogy or, you know? It's a good question. I mean, you know, I, I, on the one hand, we can take the assumption, well, everybody in pre-modern times was <laughs> well, Where does that assumption come from? I don't know. <laughs> it comes from the assumption box. That's right. <laughs> on, the, on the other hand, from. on the other hand, you know, so one of the interesting things is, the, I don't want to jump ahead, but this is a fishing village. There are fishermen. There are tons and tons of fishermen living here. Fisher and folk. Fisher folk. <laughs> fisher people. Fisher people. I like fisher folk better. Yeah, that has a better sense. It alliterates nicely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're probably really tired after a whole day's work. And are they really praying three times a day? Um, uh, you know, maybe they're not. Plus, uh, yeah. I, okay. Well, I, I, okay you know, but, uh, I'm going to withdraw my, my postulation that uh, everybody was always observing. Well, it, it really is, is based on this assumption um, that that yeah, everyone is religious or religion is dominant. And so therefore everyone's religious. And I just wonder, aren't, and I think we've talked about this before, are, are well, ancient people so different than us? Weren't there cynics? Weren't there slackers? Weren't there lazy people? Weren't there people who just didn't care? Weren't there you know, people who thought differently? Right. Um, or is everybody just the same? Or is it a big varied mix? And I would like to think that 
you know, it's a big varied mix, but that the material culture and the literary culture that's handed down to us to examine is all we have to go on. And so we assume that all of these communities are, you know, pretty, pretty homogeneous. And, right, right. Well, it's a sort uh, of pre-enlightenment. Yes. It's, a, it's, a, right. it's an enlightenment um, a projection back on pre-enlightenment periods of, of, of throughout the, you know, let's call it the West or whatever, the Judeo-Christian tradition or, or something that we, we, we like to think that, oh yeah, that everybody was, was either uh, a true believer or they were forced into expressions of belief because yeah. look at their high culture, look at all the cathedrals that they right. built, look at all the stained glass windows that they built, look at uh, what their literary culture um, such as it was, was like an and educational culture. All they knew was, was the, the Old Testament and, and the New Testament and, right. and surrounding kinds of literature. But, oh, you know, us post-Enlightenment folks, we choose not, we choose not, to, not to do this. And, we, you know, we look down on, it, on everybody before. And I think maybe there were, uh, you know, it's, it's not easily measurable, but it's, it's that I mean that's that's the problem. It's not easily measurable, and I think there's also we can't discount uh, community pressure, right? You don't want to be excommunicated. Yeah, peer, peer pressure. Or, what peer pressure? Peer pressure. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. or getting or getting burned at the stake. Right. Exactly. I keep thinking about like Salem, and you know you better. Okay, you better but that's be in a, line. But, okay. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> I don't think we need to go right to Salem. <laughs> I think we can just go to the Talmud, where they don't talk a lot about excommunication. And they don't talk about all of these kinds of things. I just can't believe that, you know, that everybody was so observant and that they were running, running down to synagogues after the destruction, at, you know, post, post 70 um, and, and, and developing worship service and praying. And, you know, I just think that some did and some didn't. And that whatever the peer pressure was, there were always, there are always ways to get around peer pressure. If you don't go to synagogue, you give them a couple of give them a couple of bucks and have them put a plaque on something, and then no one's going to say anything about you. You know, right? That's a good point too. Yeah, but right. that's or, still you know you're still re maintaining your position within the community as long as you're right. But you're not going to you're it's you're the talking. whole thing about behavior. It's the yeah. behaviors, um, you know, and right. that we don't know about. But we're getting far afield from no, from, this, from the <laughs> second synagogue. So we have a building with a bench. Right and pillars. Right. And apparently it has two smaller buildings, uh, two smaller rooms, one of which has another one of these stone shelves that's plastered that everyone is immediately jumping to say, this is where the Torah scrolls were, right. were, uh, lo were located, were stored. And of course that is a huge assumption that, you know, that these, that they Torah was being read publicly. Um, right. Now we know from Ezra and Nehemiah that they claim to be reading Torah publicly and they're sort of the architects of, you know, of, right. of modern Judaism. But, modern... but you know what, by the time that Mishnah gets started, which we say is like 200 BC, right? By then they're doing it. So- Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, they yeah. are doing it. But, um, but again, it's this issue of evidence. Right, we don't right. have any showing anything specific. And I also read in one of these many articles that it's the assumption seems to be that in the first synagogue, the um, Magdala stone itself might have been where they put the Torah when they were right, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. 
And I want to know how high that thing is. Because <laughs> unless, unless this is, you know. It's not that high. Yeah, you know, Lilliputian Jews of, of the Galilee, then, right. then they're not stooping over and bending and, you know, doing yoga to read the Torah. It's not that high and it's not that wide. If you're going to open up a Torah to have a decent amount to read, you can't really use it. Plus, I would think the top is really rough, but maybe yeah, it's not Exactly. And that's, and that is this, you know, overarching concern by by archaeologists to, you know, to, to put a bow on everything, to get it all interpreted out the wazoo so that you can present a finished product as right. quickly as possible. Right. So what do you think this, this second synagogue is? No, I, I do think it's a synagogue. Um, well, I think it's a public building. Would yeah. I call it a synagogue? I mean, that's, so that's the second part of the question. What's the difference? What's, go, what's the function of these synagogues? Right, right. right. And so we should also point out the location. Um, I think we started to, but we didn't finish. So the original big one is in um, the in residential uh, area. The, no, no, industrial. Industrial area where there's a marketplace. And <laughs> wait, 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 which one are we talking about? The first, <laughs> the first one, one with the stone. Right. Where is that? That's in, in an industrial that's area. Near adjacent to the industrial area. The second one is found in a residential area. Right. The second one is a Shtibalach. The first one is the, you know, the, the great synagogue of, of Magdala. Right. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure Mary went to the Shtibalach. Right. Maybe we should call one of them the old new synagogue. <laughs> we don't know no, which but, one came first. That's true. That's true. But, but the, you can, you can obviously, or anybody can conduct services. Yeah, for any pretty much any religion in any space. Right, right. you don't need which, a dedicated building. Right, yeah, which you don't turns need dedicated this dedicated personnel, which turns this space into a church, synagogue, a mosque, or what have you. Right. Um, so maybe this one is just like the social hall right. that, that yeah, you yeah. rented for weddings and bar mitzvahs. I like exactly. That. And, I, and the it, rest of the time they had, uh, you know dances and, and bingo uh, bingo <laughs> yeah. I, I really like that and that's what i think i think that these buildings are community buildings and there are a lot of things that go on in them one of which may or may not be religious probably but that ultimately and and first and foremost they're just community space and if you look at these ones i mean a lot of the synagogues in the diaspora are a little bit more instructive than the ones in, in the Galilee and, and Judea um, because they are a minority group and a majority embedded in a majority of which they are, don't share the religion. And in the ones in Delos and like Ostia, they all have kitchens, right? And they all have, you know, other kinds of spaces. Right, and, because they're, they're, cultural, they're cultural devices, yeah, institutions. Exactly. Right. And they have to be sort of all-purpose, all-in-one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're community centers for this minority community. And in Judea and Galilee, I, I think that they're still community centers, mm-hmm. um, but that they, you know. Multi-purpose. Multi-purpose. Yeah. It's a multi-purpose room. Right. And, right. and the other thing, of course, is that that's what modern-day synagogues are. Absolutely. Right? Except in, you know, very specific places but once you get outside of you know the northeast of the united states and especially new york and when you're in a part of the country like i am in the south synagogues 
most of the activity in a synagogue is not religious. Most of it is communal. With but pool. but right. there is a dedicated space within that. There is. Yeah. Right. That and that dedicated. Exclusively for certain practices. Right. And the rest of that space is multi-purpose. Exactly. It's educational. Yeah. It's communal. It's bingo. It's dances. It's parties. It's. Right. Uh, right. Which is really. Educational. Which is the most. Right. And it's the most substantive thing that these minority communities need to have to keep everybody together. So you, you, you have your ceremony in the big one, maybe, and then you walk your 200 meters, which is about two and a half city blocks. I looked it up uh, to, uh, to where you're going to have your reception. Um, Or you don't, or, or that's the room that you, that, that I wouldn't enter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to hang out in the community room. Where's the library? Right, right, I'll right. Read while, while all of those other people do whatever they're doing. But right, yeah, exactly. I mean, and not, right. not everybody can be, and if, if the population estimate is even close to right for this town, and I think I read 30,000 people, you know, not everybody's going to be in well, that synagogue. Do you really? Th- okay. So Josephus is the one who said something about a population of 40,000. Okay. Do you really think that there were 40,000 people anywhere? Well, no, in, in, no, right. So somebody mentioned a couple of thousand. And yeah. I think even that's- so, even so, a couple of thousand people. I mean, think of you know your biggest sized weddings with like three hundred people. Um, that's going to be really crowded. It's not that big of a synagogue, even the big one. Um, so you know you do need overflow space. Well, but it also that that also usefully raises the question of of how individual ceremonies um, were you know, manifest within the community uh, as a whole. So everybody, 30,000, 3,000, whatever, whatever the number is, how many people do you invite to a wedding? Well, how many people go to um, services on, on or on a holiday? Um, How much space do you need? So, so the, everybody, all of these interpreters of this data, whether they're archeologists or historians, always go to the extreme and say, everybody is very religious. And now that we have two synagogues that demonstrates it, mm. but, but the inverse is much more powerful. These synagogues are teeny tiny. They can hold whatever. Let's say they can hold hundred people, which the second one can't. So let's say the two of them can hold 150 people tops and you have a village of 3000 people or even 2000. You're talking about a tiny fraction of the community that's actually using this building at any one time. That's a good point. Right. There should be 20 synagogues or 30. And clearly that's not happening. Right. right. So in the case of Sepphoris, which is a big city, right? It's a big, complicated city, right? This is where, you know, this is where the Mishnah is, is completed by Judah Hanasi. And this is a big, prominent, you know, beautiful city with lots and lots of public buildings. The Talmud says at Sepphoris, there were 17 synagogues one has been found and it was found by accident okay so this is a huge city with a huge jewish population and a very prominent well-educated jewish population or well that's a a big assumption but and they have one synagogue that can only fit i mean it's a small synagogue right if you've ever gone to the sephora synagogue with a tour group you know (laughs) that's about the size of the synagogue the tour group the 20 people so there's a real disconnect between the interpretation and the physical space. And that disconnect is what tells me not every, a, lot, a large part of the population is not religious. 
Right. Or it's so, not so religious in a formal sense. Right. So how do you, which part of the population goes to the synagogue? Are we talking about elites? Are we talking about rich folks? Are we talking about just priests? What are we talking about? Do we, do we want to guess? I'm not going to answer that question because it'll come out the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> well, but By the way, I, can I also correct something I said earlier? Um, I misspoke when I said the, the beginning of the mission was 200. The beginning of the mission was like 30 uh, BC. And it's, and it's completed around 200, 200 C. C. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, if, if we go back to the Iron Age, everybody who, everybody who digs an Iron Age site in, in Judah sooner or later trips upon a temple. Ouch. <laughs> well, increasingly. Increasingly. Um, and and it really, it's, it's always been that way. Um, now, you know, a lot of these guys were looking for these things kind of intentionally. But, and if you go back to the Bronze Age, think how many temples there are. There are temples all over the place. If you go back to the Middle Bronze Age, you go to a place like Hatsor, there, there's like hundreds of them. No, right, the Jordan Valley is lousy with these tiny little temples. Little temples. And, right. And, right. and on the other hand, yeah, okay, in, in the post, um, in the you know, post 100 CE period, there are, a lot of there are a lot of synagogues in the Galilee. But in, within individual sites, as you say, there aren't, uh, there aren't a lot of them. So that something about the, the, the nature of these institutions as institutions and conversely, we're reciprocally, or, <laughs> or inter, intermodally, <laughs> the actual, pra actual praxis. Oh, please. Oh, oh, oh. boo. <laughs> Just don't. Praxis. Just don't praxis. That's my bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, I need to get some praxis on that. Uh, uh, this. So, <clears throat> so, yeah, what's going on? There's like an inverse inverse evolutionary phenomenon going on here. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a really interesting thing that, uh, well, there's a lot of interesting things. And one is, is that for a really long time, there were very few synagogues. And now that, you know, basically all of the Galilee has been torn up with, you know, road projects and everything else. We now know that every single, you know, small little Galilean village had a synagogue. Right. Right. And that actually makes sense. It does. To makes total sense. And that demonstrates a bunch of things. One of which is, you know, these villages have, have disposable income. That's a good point. You know, these are, these are prosperous little villages that they can afford this kind of thing. Right. Um, right. And well, the yeah, prosperous enough. Prosperous enough. But enough. Well, I mean, you, you go across, I don't know, it's a, it's a rough analogy. You go across Eastern Europe uh, yeah, 500 I knew years ago. Yes. Every but, little, every little Jewish community had something that passed for a synagogue, yes. and some of them were quite wonderful and grand. But you know, a lot of right. But that, but I was going to okay. So you want to address that? Those are tiny little wooden structures that can right. be thrown yeah. up very inexpensively. In these synagogues in the Galilee, these <laughs> they're do stone. They, right. They express stone wealth. They're, yeah. they're cut stone. They yeah. need mason, they need plans and architects and masons. And stone cutters, they have mosaic, they all have mosaic floors. Right. So, right, there's who cook, right? So, our good friend and uh, colleague, uh, Professor Jody Magnus, goes to excavate a village where there might be a synagogue. 
and she finds a synagogue with a small village attached to it. And this synagogue has a mosaic floor that is beyond comprehension and demonstrates a tremendous amount of wealth. But even more, nah, not more interesting, but equally as interesting, just down the road, there's a teeny tiny little village and a synagogue there at Khorvat Kur, which also has a tiny little synagogue with a mosaic floor. And you know, it's not nearly as beautiful as Hukuk. But again, it shows us that every, all of these villages have them. And I think that they do express wealth. They have mosaic floors and they have stone buildings and that's different yeah. than a little but, wooden. But maybe that, maybe that refutes your assertion regarding um, practice and religiosity. Maybe well, again, they're really small. So not a lot of people can fit in them. Right, but there is enough of a need that they- I, re I, re I refute my <laughs> refutation. I, I will not, ref I do not accept this refutation. <laughs> Um, but this Magdala is at least a relatively wealthy. It's got industry. It's got fishing. It's got it's got a lot going on for yeah, it. They keep talking about an industrial quarter. What the, what kind of industrial quarter? Processing I mean, fish. There's a well, like maybe, Carmel in there's the a, beginning of the 20th century. There's a quarry nearby, so maybe they're talking about the production of stone vessels. Yeah, but nobody said anything about that. But. No, I'm just I'm wondering what I mean. When people say industrial area and they're not specific then it's like, what yeah. are you talking about? Pottery yeah. production? Every place is producing pottery. Right, right. Well, okay, it's a big enough city to have some sort of industrial complex, be it a fishing industrial complex or a stone quarrying industrial complex. And uh, that might speak to its, its relative wealth and importance in the larger neighborhood. Um, okay, so why does it have so few synagogues in, within it? <laughs> well, the other thing is, um, well, there are a couple of other things. So, so at least one of these articles mentioned that there are mikvahs associated with maybe the first synagogue. Right. Um, and when I was touring this site a couple of years back, it was pointed out to me that there are some mikvahs that seem to be in domestic areas as well. So I don't yeah. know what, if anything, that means. Is there a religious segment of this society that worships at home or that, that, that does religious stuff? Um, at home as well as in the synagogue. And uh, that doesn't negate the idea of not everybody going to synagogue all the time. But, and of um, course, in Roman uh, houses, you have, um, you know, pools. You have small right. pools. So right. there's a cultural component to it. And, and if, the, if the Jewish population wants to make theirs, you know, part of Jewish practice, that's fine. But it's also embedded within a larger, you know, Greco-Roman cultural matrix in which if you can afford it, you know, you have a pool. And of course, then there's also a practical, though it's not so practical at the Sea of Galilee, which is just, you know, having access to, you know, some kind of area where you can, you know, get, get a bath. Right. But that doesn't work at Magdala because you can just, you know, go into the water, right. Just jump in. Right, right. right. Um, no. But but there's, a, I think, you know, yes, there are definitely mikvahot and mikvahot definitely have a religious component to them. But again, I'm wondering, I always wonder how much of it is just religious and how much of it is part of a shared cultural tradition and how much of it is, you know, just a place to get, you know, get a little washed up every now and then. Right, right. Um, Remember, it's just, I think 
you know, that old saying, you don't study the archaeology, you study the archaeologist. And I think that in the case of religious practice and archaeological data, you need to, you know, you need to really be very comprehensive and thorough and not make these kinds of assumptions. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. And I'll tell you what I've always wondered about mikvahs in the pre-modern period is, you know, now who goes to mikvah? People who really <laughs> are involved in, in the, the very observant practices of Judaism. But you know what, if you don't have a society where you can have a bath every day, there's right. really much more of an incentive to go to the mikveh at prescribed times. So you're forced to take a shower every so often or take a bath rather every so often. And well, especially- I think, I think French nobility of the 18th century would disagree with you on that, but- Well, uh, okay. right, but, 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 not the, but not in Roman times. So okay. you yeah. know, take medieval Europe and, and you know, early modern Europe out of the mix because you know, right. they're, there we, we give them a lot more credit than they deserve but if you <laughs> put it back in a roman context people are you know people are bathing in elaborate places all the time they love right. going around in baths um so you and know it forces you to be clean every so often which i think is a plus yeah and i think that you know clever religious community leaders interweave the two like shabbat the sabbath is special right and let's try to make it as special as possible. And we have this sort of Talmudic, um, you know, Talmudic uh, practice of bathing, of going to the mikvah for, uh, in preparation for Shabbat. Let's encourage that. And people are like, yeah, at the end of the week, I smell like fish. The practical and the spiritual are, are unified. Potentially, nice. right? Yeah, or at least they're not—they're not contradictory, right? And uh, so, what would a what would a you know the the, the classic Martian archaeologist scenario? What a Martian archaeologist coming to this coming to this site or or others like it? What would they make of that of all this without um, the uh, the the burden the burden of knowledge? <laughs> Uh, of, of <laughs> expectations and, and experience. That's a good question. I they think would they, see, would see... they would see one room which has something obviously very, very fancy in the middle of it. And they'd go, yeah, there's something, there's something possibly spiritual going on here, or it's certainly communal. It's potentially religious in its many dimensions. And then they'd look at this other room go, yeah, that's that's one, the multi-purpose room. Why yeah. only one? Why only one bench? Right. <laughs> only ten people can sit. <laughs> that's the chapel, the daily chapel. Right. I guess. Right. I mean, there's a lot of you know. You, you want to speculate? We can speculate. Um, but uh, first of all, you know, a Martian looking at it was going to call the first bigger, fancier one a temple, and they're going to see the stone, and they're going to say that's the altar for sacrifices. And um, they're going to see the the second one, and they're going to say, "Yeah, it's a multi-purpose room, or it's some sort of public building." Um, and maybe maybe they're going to speculate elite versus not elite. Maybe they're going to speculate men versus women. Um, you know, we can go lots of speculation. I want to ask another question. So, for a long time, we had no synagogues um, before the during the Second Temple period, and now we have something on the order of seven or eight, right? Yeah. 
Does that seven or eight represent scarcity of, of Second Temple period synagogues or abundance? Mm. Is it the tip of the iceberg or is it, you know, the complete set or, or closer to the complete set than anything else? What do you think, Dr. Dessel? No, I'm, I'm, I'm asking the questions now. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's in the he's in the catbird seat here. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, obviously you don't know. No, because right. We, we, and have, yeah. we have limited samples. The samples are are what they are. Knowledge has evolved over the last whatever two hundred and fifty years, say, since people have been investigating these kinds of things through surveys and excavations. And what's changed are the expectations. What's changed is the is is the, the paradigm of, oh, no, no, it, <laughs> nobody, uh, which was textually derived of, oh, no, no, there, there, were no um, there were no synagogues outside of Jerusalem because they didn't need them, they didn't want them, because we don't have them, to a position of, yeah, okay, there's, there's some, and, and, we're, and we're surprised. <laughs> we're, still <trying> to, <laughs> we're still trying to make up a, a, a backstory for them. And, and what we don't have is, is you know, a huge sample. Well, Answer but, the question. <laughs> I, I think like, are there seven, let's go back to Sepphoris. Are there 17 synagogues in Sepphoris? Yeah, there's one. There's one found, so far. That they found in the park and then they found when they started building the, the parking, parking lot. Well, that asks the, so, but textually, that's where you said we get the number 17 from, right? It says so in right. the Talmud. Yeah. So, or just so, Josephus. Or Josephus. No, it's no, it's Talmudic. Okay. So, what defines a synagogue? You know, is it somebody's spare room in their house? Oh my God! No one's going to answer this question. This is. I, a little, I, I'll, I, all right. I'll answer. No, I'll okay. I'll, I'll answer. Right. Both of you should <laughs> answer. <it. laughs> um, I, my first reaction is that, like any other number presented in an ancient text, you have to be automatically suspicious. And, sure. you, and you have to reduce it by a factor of, of X. So you don't have hundreds of thousands of this or tens of thousands of that. And you probably don't have 17 synagogues in Sepphoris. You may have 1.7 synagogues or, or three or five, but it's, it's less and numbers are there for exaggeration. So that's my first reaction. Okay. My first reaction is um, is is uh, maybe it is the tip of a growing yeah, iceberg, the iceberg that <laughs> that you that you know there's this movement away from centralization. Jerusalem is becoming less important already, even <laughs> even when the temple is still standing. It's just like there are there are Bronze Age cuneiform texts <laughs> just. Right, but this is my point. So we're going to find them. Yeah, this is this is my point. However, you can how, whatever you answer is an indication of what kinds of perspectives you have on information in general. It has nothing to do with your training or your background or anything. It has to do with your personality. It has to do oh. with things like optimism <laughs> yeah. and pessimism oh, and how yeah. and all of these kinds of things. And, and that has that's just part of our our you know humanity is seven synagogues a lot or is it a little 
and we don't have any data. I mean, so whatever you say is fine because we, we can't prove it one way or another. And it's just your predisposition towards this, towards, towards you know, knowledge. So that, but that opens up a whole other kettle of fish, which is... <laughs> Whoa, which is, hold it. I don't think you can open up a kettle of fish. Well, I think you can open up a tin of sardines. <laughs> this is very apropos for a fishing village. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, your point about about personality and optimism and pessimism, it, I think is, is possibly the most important thing we've ever, we've ever talked about here. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes to the site. The stakes are pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> it goes to the psychology of, of individuals and intellectual disciplines. And it goes to the pedagogy yeah. of, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the individual and, and intellectual disciplines like archaeology to the extent that they're disciplined at all and should we be should we be inculcating optimism or pessimism should we be teaching these things no but we should be examining it we should be examining for instance how early 19th century archaeologists viewed things versus early 20th century archaeologists etc yeah i gave i gave her an opening Now she's going to drive a Mack truck through it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right on over us. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if there had been some kind of test for optimism or pessimism, <laughs> would any of us have, well, have, we would have been turfed out of graduate school <laughs> after like two weeks. Or maybe we would have given, be given professorships at Harvard. That's based right. On, That's right. Who knows? Which yeah. is desirable. Which is desirable. Right. So, so this gets to then a second follow-up question, which was raised in almost all of these popular articles and which, and which is also mentioned by archeologists in these articles. Okay. Did, did Mary go to these synagogues? Obviously. Now it's interesting that everybody asks that because a lot of times by the fourth century, you get into these preposterous discussions as to whether women <laughs> were allowed in synagogues and did they have a separate you know, area in the synagogue and all of these other reductionist modern readings of, you know, of- Retrojections. Of, right, exactly, retrojections. So, you know, did Mary go to Shul? Did Mary go to one of these synagogues? I mean, you know, again, that is purely based on your, your own personality right and nothing on any data <laughs> right and it's it's interesting that at least in these cases you have jewish archaeologists who are speculating about you know christian figures well, and their right. or so they figured, were jewish at the time jewish yeah, figures right. who who become <laughs> important in the christian tradition let's put it that right. way Right. right. But there's and, plenty of speculation about the role of women in the early church. Exactly. And right. right. The role of women in all religion, in Bronze Age Canaanite religion. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Um, and what does, again, I don't, you know, we need a Talmud scholar to tell us about, about um, you know, regulations regarding women in the Mishnaic period. Um, but there are. <laughs> there are if sure, I only had one on speed dial <laughs> but but then you then you have to ask well uh, you know to what extent do these do these regulations represent and I'm going to use the word again oh no, oh, no. 
and uh, as opposed to you know this reform <laughs> reform praxis is like uh, you know women are, are welcome orthodox practice and again ridiculous retrojections from from the present and from the early modern period or misunderstandings of medieval and earlier uh, periods. So we really know very little. Right, and we speculate wildly and in a popular context, archeologists will say just about anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's what makes us fun. Right, yeah. and I guess that is what makes it fun. Yeah, but then you, have to, then you have to say, then you have to endorse the concept of fun, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not um, not terribly prevalent in in archaeology, <laughs> either in theory or uh, in, in method. We're breaking the mold. <laughs> well, the mold the mold is broken over us, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how religious? There's so many there's so many questions. I think it's probably a it's probably a multi purpose room. Bingo. Do you think Mary was in it? <laughs> she was the one calling out the bingo. Calling out. <laughs> Alpha nine. Alpha nine. And what was the prize? A dip in you get the to go to the second synagogue. <laughs> get let in. You get to sit on a bench. Right. You don't have to stand in the in the doorway and strain. Right. Sitting on a bench is tantamount to getting one of the best parking spots. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's so much more meaningful for high holiday services to have a dedicated parking spot within very close proximity to the show than anything else. Well, if we're going to get into that kind of conversation, we also <laughs> <laughs> we also have to, you know, now we're into later Judaism, but not not just modern, you know, who gets the first reading of the Torah, who gets the second portion of the Torah. You know, there's a lot of elitism going totally. on. Oh, it's yeah. all elitism. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the parking spaces are the most important in a practical <laughs> sense. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the point about the getting to sit on the bench. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's uh, who sat on the benches. Did yeah. is it just uh, the, the 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 senior men, priests and the Levites, the the priests and the Levites, or is it the elders Would it of the, be the priests? Why do you keep bringing up priests? I don't think I, I don't think the priests were part yeah. of the synagogue, uh, you know, scene. Fair enough. You're you're right. You're right. I but think, they they still had a little role, but it wasn't like the temple. You're right. Right. I think. Right. I think that. You know, I think that that synagogues developed. I think they developed as you know community centers, and I think they developed, you know, in the Second Temple period pretty early, and as just another adaptive strategy by Jews who were, you know, had sort of a slightly different agenda or view on things. Where they wanted to hang out, but they didn't, you know. I don't know. Right. Well, we're just at the beginning of the rabbinic period. So, you know, we don't necessarily have a, a, a synagogue leader called a rabbi. We don't, that's right. That's not yet. And even in synagogues, we don't know, you know, even that's in these four, fourth and fifth century, these big, beautiful synagogues in the Galilee, you know, we don't know who's leading them because we get terms for synagogue leadership, but it's, you know, it's not the rabbis who are in charge. And we have all of these zodiacs, right? right. All of this, um, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, very counterintuitive kind of imagery found in synagogues. So it's like if the rabbis were walking into the synagogue, into a, the Sephiroth synagogue or Beit Alpha or any of them, and saw a zodiac, well, then that's a very different <laughs> kind of perspective than we're led to believe in the Talmud, where you right. wouldn't ever have a zodiac on a floor of a synagogue. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, the literary traditions are preserving and, and legal traditions are preserving one very specific agenda and viewpoint, but what's going on on the ground could be very, very different, very, very different. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, and, you know, the, the, the position of like a sexton, you know, as opposed to a religious leader, you know, who, who's right. Who, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's very unclear and based on how synagogues are run today, you know, like I said, the majority of activity and people in any non-modern orthodox or traditional synagogue in America, which are the dominant types, the majority of time and energy and money are not spent on religious activities. Very true. And in fact, in modern America, the way synagogues support themselves besides patronage is, you know, you rent out your, your, your gymnasium to whatever group wants it. So, right. Well, okay. No, but also, <laughs> oh, Alex didn't like that one. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm all for renting out the gymnasium. It's not, that's not the issue. You know, religious, religious services take X, which are supposed to occur in a synagogue three times a day, two, really two times a day. That's whatever, two hours, three hours, all, fa all facilities, um, any facility sits idle mm. or, and is open to being used for other purposes um, the vast majority of its, of its time. And it doesn't matter if it's a church, a mosque, or a synagogue, or, right. or, any, or anything else. And the nature of, the nature of religion as a cultural device for, for social, you know, integration and social reproduction means that there are other activities, educational, social. Ah, educational. You, you, have, you have classes, you show films, you have dances, you rent it out to basketball teams, you have weddings, and that fills up a, a meaningful amount of the time because you don't like to have empty buildings. Community spaces. Community spaces, but also that's, those are fundamental to the reproduction of the culture right. itself. And nice. And you didn't even say praxis. <laughs> I was I was giving you the opening you. for for that. But uh, no, it all, it makes me think that um, all, all archaeology is best done without texts. This text just text just you know gum things up. And it's, it's a lot more fun to make up stories on the basis of All right. some tchotchkes yeah. in it. But what can okay. you do? We're burdened with texts. <laughs> Final thoughts? Um, no, I'm going to go play pickleball in my synagogue later today. <laughs> yeah. Is uh, it, it doesn't look like a very fast-moving sport, is it? Uh, for some people, you know, young people have taken the sport over and now it's a very fast moving, crazy sport, uh, but you know, in its origins for, you know, old, old altacockers. Yeah. It's yeah. not very fast. Just moving. watch your knees. 
You're back. <laughs> Professor Hallett, final I thoughts? Don't, I don't, after that, I have no final thoughts. <laughs> you know, one of, at the very least, we should sit down and, you know, have a little plate of pickled herring and a, a little yeah. schnapps and... Right. Yeah, well, we should have been, been doing that all, all along, for certainly this episode, if not everyone. Right. But... Um, Do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, it's just, again, it's interesting how an empty building can provoke so much <laughs> so much discussion and, and controversy in the right hands. And these, <laughs> these are those hands. We're out, you know, all of that makes, what, six between us. Well, I mean, I'm no mathematician. <laughs> all right, in that case. And on that note. On that note. Well, like I said, the piety question. Anywho, in the meantime, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, educator in residence at the Savannah Music Festival, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Standard Knitting Mill of Knoxville, Tennessee, the world's largest, which is why Knoxville is the underwear capital of the world. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at This Week in the Ancient Near East. It's all one word at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.